So what would you think if you were if you were walking up to a doctor's office and you were met by somebody who was getting a really good look at people as they were walking up, and if they looked too sick, they said, you have to leave. And then even if you didn't look too sick, they took your temperature, and if they found out that you were sick, they sent you away. That wouldn't be very... That wouldn't be very nice, right? What would you do if you found out that the people that were doing that were the actual doctors? That you were going, that would be really bad. And then even worse would be, what would happen if you found out that there was a doctor down the street someplace that was seeing those sick people, and every time they found out about it, they were, the other doctors that were sending people away were just grumbling and complaining about what a horrible person that doctor was down the street that was seeing all of these sick people. That would be like kind of wrong. It's pretty easy for us to say that we would say that would be really wrong, wouldn't it? I mean, it's not like rocket science. I mean, that would be really absurd for doctors to be sending away all these sick, pe sick people and criticizing doctors that were treating them. Well, you probably have heard it said before that the church is supposed to be like a doctor's office or like a hospital. But it seems that there are times when it's doctors treat people like that. They treat the sick people like they don't want to spend time with them or they want to send them away or shuffle them down the street someplace and, and then criticize the, the other churches that are willing to accept and embrace and work with and seek to find healing for those that are sick. I mean, it's weird because it's like people sometimes treat the church like it's a sickness-free zone, not realizing that if it really was, they themselves would have to leave. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thumbs up, right? Praise God, the doctors don't send your thumb looks bad. See ya. Goodbye. Stay away. Um, <laughs> if you follow the news at all, you may have recently heard of some banking scandals. Has anybody followed this at all? 5,300 plus Wells Fargo bankers. Um, responding to pressure and personal greed via personal incentives that were sent down by the higher-ups, um, opened over 2 million phony accounts for people, taking people's money and opening extra accounts for them because they were getting incentives and kickbacks. And, of course, then the banks were themselves charging fees monthly for those accounts. Right? Over 2 million phony accounts. In 1.5 million of the cases... They were checking our savings accounts, opened using the money of their customers without their permission, and again, simply robbing people on a monthly basis due to the fees that they were being charged. Just over 500,000 of those 1.5 million accounts were credit card accounts. It's like real nice to think that my banker might be opening a credit card account on my behalf. Thank you so much. I need another one of those. Of 14,000 of those, four, those, those one, those, uh, what was it, 500,000, 14,000 incurred over $400,000 in fees. Just to get a little bit of an idea of how much money we're talking about. So 500,000 credit card accounts were set up. Of 14,000 of those, four, of those 500,000 incurred $400,000 in fees. Wow. 
a lot of money. It's like a bunch of scoundrels, hoodlums, twisted. That's horrible. I mean, that's that kind of white-collar crime that people don't often take seriously enough. And I'm afraid that the response to it in general isn't serious enough. This is significant crime. This is just robbing right out of people's pockets. They're hard-earned money. It's just wrong. How do people do this? Steal from people. What are they thinking? Bunch of sickos steal people's money like that. It's not okay. Or, or things like in our past, the Enron scandal. It's ripping old ladies off of their retirements. There's some sick people. Really sick. Right? What would you say if I said that Matthew was one of those kinds of sickos? More than willing to rip people off in exchange for a paycheck despite how it might have hurt people. What if I was to mention that to you? Let me read for you from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Well, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Taxation in Jesus' day was horrible. Like, we talk about, like, not wanting to pay our taxes today. But it's tiny in comparison to what they were paying. By some people's estimations, 40 or more percent of your income was going to taxes. And that didn't likely include the temple tax that you had to pay if you are going to be a fine, upstanding Jewish person. So sometimes 40 to 60 percent, some people would even imagine, including temple tax, of your income Went, went to taxation. That's crazy. And then the way that it worked, taxation on the, Ro in the, on the Roman side of the government, the way that worked, because, of course, the Jewish people in that, that time were not a free people. They had to pay tribute, and they were under the thumb of, of the Roman government all the time. And it was the Roman government that were really horribly unscrupulous when it came to making people pay taxes. And they would do what's called tax farming. So the Roman government does a census, by the way, that's one of the reasons that Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem, right? We tell that story as though it's a nice little story. Oh, Mary and Joseph got to go to Bethlehem. Yeah, they were going to be find out how much how many people there were to figure out how much tax they could extort out of people. Anyway, what the Roman government would do is they would sell the rights to collect tax to people. They would say, okay, there's this many people in this area. We want to make sure we get $20 ahead over this next year. So if you want to go ahead and pay us up front $20 a head for the, how many citizens there are in that area, then we can go ahead and sell you the rights to collect taxes. Well, you can imagine what would happen when that would be handed down a number of times before it actually got to the person that was going to do the tax collecting. It was farmed out and farmed out and farmed out and farmed out. 
the number went up and up and up and up per person. So Matthew himself was probably a hired person from a tax farmer. Somebody like Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? The wee little man was he? He climbed up in a sycamore tree. The Lord he wanted to see. Jesus apparently liked tax collectors for some strange reason. He went and had dinner at his house too. He was a he was a chief tax collector. He may have been somebody that had bought the right to collect tax from people. Matthew wasn't a chief tax collector. He was probably hired by somebody like Zacchaeus. But nonetheless, he's participating as a Jewish man with Roman extortion of the Jewish people. He was a sinner of sometimes considered one of the most horrible kind, a traitor to his people, ripping people off grabbing more money than was necessary. Religious leaders of Jesus' day believed that the way to reach these kind of sinners, if you were even concerned <laughs> with trying to reach these kind of sinners, was to call for change first, including the diligent study and application of the Old Testament, of the Torah, of the law as an acceptance requirement. They were to be done, these things, as a pre-treatment. Not unlike pre-soaking a super-stained shirt in hopes you can get the stains out of it enough to wear it again. Maybe we can super-soak some of these sinners and get them to the point where they're lovable again or redeemable again or okay again. As seen with in public. But this wasn't the way it was with Jesus. There wasn't any prerequisite with Matthew. Jesus mercifully comes and welcomes people. That acceptance was the necessary beginning of a person's transformation and healing. Because Jesus didn't just say, follow me. Next thing you find out, Jesus ends up at Matthew's house eating with not just Matthew, but other tax collectors and sinners. Table fellowship in Jesus' day was a big deal. Like, we just have, a, we go over to people's houses and we have dinner and we share time together. And it's not that big of a deal. It can be. It can be really a special time. But in Jesus' context, you know, to, to eat with somebody else and to share table fellowship with somebody else was to accept them, to consider them as an equal, to love them, to care about them, to be like, you're okay. We're okay. I'm okay with you. Jesus was criticized heavily for it by the religious leaders who believed that, again, not only repentance and obedience was required as a precondition to social acceptance, but interestingly, that repentance and obedience on behalf of people was also a required precondition for the arrival of the kingdom of God. In other words, Religious leaders in Jesus' day believed that the kingdom of God would not come unless people changed first. But the kingdom of God was going to come as a response to people's obedience to the Torah, like as if God is just waiting around, thinking, well, one of these days these people are going to get straightened out and I'll be willing to show up as soon as they're good enough. That was their attitude. I'm afraid that sometimes that attitude is still alive today. Oh, Jesus, come again, come again. If we can just figure out how to get this stuff right, if we can just do it a little bit better, then maybe it'll hasten the day. 
not the way it works. I wonder what Matthew, the tax collector, traitor, and all-around awesome sinner thought about this whole Jesus inviting him to follow him. I mean, if I really stop, it doesn't tell us much. The text doesn't tell us much, but I just want to explore some different things that maybe were going on in Matthew's life. We, we don't know. But like, I imagine that just in general, he's struggling with being a Jew in a Roman-run world. I mean, people knew he was a Jew. They would have known. And he knows he's not free to just be a Jew without having to answer to some other government all the time. That may have been why he decided to just, you know, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. Watching other people get rich off the backs of the taxes collected by Rome, maybe I should just go ahead and, and do that. I mean, I guess that's the idea of a traitor, right? Maybe he went through a time in his life when his attitude was like, maybe if I could only be a better Jew, God would then come and help me. I'm struggling now, but maybe if I could just get it together for long enough, God would show up and do something for me and deliver me. And may maybe, maybe he was a guy that tried that for a really long time and finally gave up. God didn't seem to show up, so I'll move on. You guys could never have thought of doing something like that, huh? Yeah, me, me either, right? Or maybe he didn't even consider things from that angle at all. Maybe on that day that Jesus finds him sitting there at that tax collector's booth, maybe he was just having a bad day. Maybe he was just disgruntled with his job. He didn't like it. He's getting tired of having people snarl at him and argue with him and refuse to pay their taxes. Maybe he was just feeling that day a lot of shame, a lot of guilt. I mean, if I was a tax collector despised by my own people as they were traveling down a road and I'm trying to get them to give me 10 out of their 100 fish, I'd probably get a little tired of that after a while. I mean, one thing is clear. He was a traitor. And he was extorting his own people, making himself a living while lining his pockets with the same money that was lining the pockets of the Herodian dynasty that were running the temple at that time and of the Roman Empire. But regardless of how he felt, he was led to leave his job at what seems like just the drop of a hat and follow Jesus. Unlike some of the disciples and their jobs, we never hear of Matthew. We don't hear about him a whole lot after this, but he does have a gospel that carries his name. But we certainly never hear about him as a tax collector again. Now, some of the disciples go back to fishing for a short period of time. We hear about people like the Apostle Paul, who was a tent maker, but there are some jobs that just need to be left behind to follow Jesus. You know? Some things just don't jive real well with the call of Jesus on our lives. Others, and probably most, 
can truly be integrated into our lives of faith. People ask me often, especially when people first surrender their lives to Jesus, like, what jobs should be left behind and which ones are okay? Like, can I continue to do this? That's just hard to say. It is hard to say. I mean, again, there are some things that are just kind of off limits, like being an assassin or a mercenary or a money launderer. Something like that, right? Drug dealer, probably not, unless you're a pharmacist. Banker, real questionable. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> but then other areas are just gray. It's just hard to know for sure. And I think we need to embrace that kind of like it's hard to know for sure. For some people, maybe they can handle certain jobs. Like I had a friend never had a drinking problem in his life, and it wouldn't necessarily at this point in his life have mattered, but he was a bartender. And he quit going to church because he was told that he can't be a bartender and go to church. I know, there's a, that's really common, actually. I know a bunch of Christian bartenders that don't go to church because they're told they can't tend bar and go to church. And that may be the case for some, right? Well, this particular friend of mine, he's, for him, it's, it's his ministry, he's, right? He is interacting with people that desperately need something different on a regular basis. But maybe for others that wouldn't be able to handle they wouldn't be able to handle it for different reasons, right? I get that. So I don't know that we can, in some of those situations, just draw clear lines and say, okay, these jobs are off limits and these aren't off limits. But for sure, hmm. There's one thing that's always true. We must recognize that it is more about you and how you are transformed, about how you handle your job as a transformed person than it is about any specific job. How are you going to allow Jesus to transform you and allow that to influence how you do your job? Apparently, Matthew found that it was not a, he was not able to return to extorting people out of their money as a tax collector. Because again, we never hear about that from him again. But this transformation, I want to talk about that some more. Transformation is not a prerequisite for a life with Jesus. But it is part of a life with Jesus. As Jesus puts it, the sick need a doctor. You don't get healthy to see a doctor. You see a doctor to get healthy. I know it's like stupidly obvious, right? I want you to note again that Jesus asked nothing of Matthew. I want to belabor this point. Jesus asks nothing of Matthew other than to follow him. He, I'm not saying it wasn't a lot, but he asks nothing else. He doesn't say, go get yourself cleaned up or recite these psalms or memorize this scripture or do this or do that. Or do. He asks nothing of him other than to walk away from his staff. He doesn't even say, leave it forever. He just says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows him. He doesn't put any other stipulations on it. He doesn't say, first go and be baptized and then you come follow me. Go see John the Baptist, although maybe he's in prison. Go find somebody to bat. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, follow me. And Matthew gets somebody and he follows him. 
Jesus calls and accepts Matthew mercifully and totally. Mercifully, he calls him. Remember, he says, Jesus does, he calls sinners, not the righteous. So there must be mercy involved. Mercifully, he calls him. Matthew was a mercifully called sinner. And he accepts him totally as he breaks bread with him, as he eats with him, as he shares life with him, as he shares fellowship with him, this most intimate of settings in that historical context. And keep in mind, very few, if any of us, are just immediately transformed. And it would be wrong for us to think that Matthew was immediately transformed the moment he got up from that tax booth. He was not just suddenly and abruptly a good man. Sometimes I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. Despite how much contemporary church propaganda wants to tell us, the vast, 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 vast majority of us are put on a slow road to recovery by our good physician. It's more like a long rehab than a shot in the rump. Not that that couldn't be part of a long rehab. Or a pill that we take and swallow and we're just fine. He knows that the deep healing we need just simply can, it cannot be rushed. It can't be. I mean, I get the desire to rush healing. Because I'm like, the moment the doctor was diagnosing me on Monday, I'm just grilling him for how long it takes for some of these injuries to heal and pushing him on it. Right? He's like, broken sternum, five, six, six weeks. I'm like, well, what if I'm feeling really good in five weeks? And he says, well, let's go with what the doctor has to say about your hand. I didn't like that answer, so I pushed back a little bit more. And he's like, well, can you wear some kind of chest protection? Because you know the sternum is the only thing that protects your vital organs right behind it. So I get this desire. We just want to be better, right? Like, there are times when we sin and we like it. There are other times when we sin and we know we're just deteriorating our own lives and the people's lives around us, and we want to stop. And we just want it to be easy. We just want to be like, my goodness, I don't even want to think that anymore, let alone do that. The process of transformation is slow. It's a whole life process. It starts from the inside, and it works its way out, and it changes everything about you. It's a whole life process that takes a whole life. And it's not a matter of controlling action. I mean, sometimes we think that the first thing we need to do is control our actions. That's not the first thing we need to do. If, if aiming to control our actions is the first thing we seek, we will fall probably into one of the deadliest, well, it's probably all deadly, a deadly form of legalism. And we'll die. We'll, we'll get maybe at best some social conformity for a time. It just slams the door of the kingdom of God in the faces of people. I mean, we need to be concerned about our actions. But if we're really going to be concerned about our actions, the first place we need to go is focus inwardly. Why do we do what we do? What's going on with the source of my doing? Right? Their actions start someplace, someplace in here. And God needs to work on that and heal us and change us. 
behind the sternum. That's right. That's why God had to get in there somehow harder, right? Could be. Could be I'm hard-headed. I'm hard sternum too, apparently. So changing our actions takes first a focus on inward change. And that inward change is only possible with God. Only possible with God. If you require of others or of yourself outward change before you can come into contact with God, then inward change, the place that change is really needed to begin, will never happen. Is with me on that? And the people that do this, the pharisaical, the legalistic, they often know this. They know that they can't really get their actions under control. Deep someplace, they know it. And they hate. They hate themselves, and they hate others. And they hate anyone who has what they feel like they can't receive. This is at least one of the reasons many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day hated. They were too invested in trying to control themselves and the world around them by simply dealing with outward things. And when this gracious man comes in without any pre-stained treatment says, come on, my father loves you. Follow me. Let's have a party. They couldn't handle it. Transformation takes time. It takes intention. It takes God. So don't run from God in failure. Don't run from, if there's anything we should learn from the story of creation and the fall of man, Adam and Eve, they ran from God. They shouldn't have run from God. They blew it, but God pursued them. They shouldn't have run from Him. Let Him come near to you in those places that are messed up in you. So what do you think of Matthew in this little story? What? Let me ask you this. What if you didn't know how he turned out? Let's say all you know is that you are a hard-working person, and you're being as good as you can possibly be, and lo and behold, some trader and swindler tax collector was invited to spend time with some really well-known pastor. What if that's all you knew of Matthew? You just knew the first part of the story. You didn't know anything else about it. What would you think? Or let me put it this way. What would you think if you were being ripped off by your personal banker who's stealing from you, and even before he admitted guilt or repented or made a restitution, some pastor went to his house and had a party? What would you think? So let me ask you again, what do you think of Matthew? What would you think of him? Would you be suspect? Hmm. I think I maybe would be. I don't know about this guy. I don't know what's going on over here. Jesus is hanging out with this tax collector, sinner guy. Oh, it's not very cool. He's having dinner at his house. Golly, I've been doing pretty good all this time. And 
This guy's been ripping me off. He ain't having dinner at my house. Not fair. Or what if the, the sinner in this story would have been somebody just a little bit less known or less despised, just the average person? Would we have a double standard where some people are given a little bit better chance than others? Like, that guy is really messed up. This guy ain't so bad. I'm going to be really suspect of that guy, but this guy over here, you know, he's probably, he's probably cool. He's probably going to make it. I mean, I get that, right? I get that because it, it seems the worse the sinner, the harder the time in following Jesus. It, it seems. But I have to ask the question of why is that? Why is it that the worse the sinner, the harder the person, time the person has following Jesus? Because that doesn't seem to be the stories that I see in the scriptures, that doesn't seem to be the gospel story. Matter of fact, Jesus says, he who is forgiven much, loves much. You know, have prostitutes crying and wiping Jesus' feet with their tears and drying his feet with their hair. That doesn't seem to be the way the story goes. Maybe then, maybe it's because nowadays everyone is looking at this worse seemingly sinner than others and holding them at arm's length, and instead of embracing them and cheering them, they're looking at them cross-eyed and wondering if they're going to possibly make it with this Jesus guy in their discipleship. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's why people struggle so much today, because they just aren't really loved and embraced in the church. Made to feel like, well, you know, <laughs> you know what, you prove yourself and jump through a few hoops and do a couple of other things that are good, and then maybe, maybe you can really make it. Maybe then we can hang out and barbecue and and have, have a meal together. I mean, I get it too. We are supposed to be disciples surrendering our wills to become like Jesus. Right? So consider him. He was willing to risk his reputation in the eyes of some to help those who knew they needed help. It seems like there's times when Christians aren't willing to risk their reputations to hang out with people that are really in need of God because of how they think they may be perceived. But Jesus doesn't have that concern. As a matter of fact, he builds his reputation on hanging out with people that really need God. He built his reputation on accepting sinners despite the perception of the religious elites, because he knew that God desires mercy over sacrifice. Jesus was not ashamed to befriend those who were considered the scum of society. In any church, including this one, that excludes someone, quote-unquote, undesirable for the sake of appearance, is getting it horribly wrong. Any way that excludes some from Jesus or requires pretreatments for clearly stained people before entering into the kingdom of God, those are miss those people are missing the mark. And quite honestly, misrepresenting God. Either that or Jesus was misrepresenting him. We can't have it both ways.
all of this is really good news. It is. It is really good news. Peace. I don't know anybody that doesn't want peace. I want peace, inner peace, outer peace, world peace. Peace is good. I like peace is good, real peace. But peace is found in knowing that Jesus called you because you're a sinner. That's why he said that he came to, to call the sinners, not the righteous. So there's peace in knowing that he called you because you're a sinner. And while he calls us to grow and to produce fruit, it is not growth and fruit that got you, and it's not growth and fruit that keeps you. By grace, God called Matthew. And by grace, Matthew was transformed. And by grace, Matthew was kept. By grace, God has called you. By grace, God is transforming you. By grace, God keeps you. It's the same with the person sitting across the room or walking down the street. It's all about God's grace and love and His mercy. When we can settle down and live in that place, amazing things happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You so much for your grace and mercy, goodness and kindness, and thank you that we don't have to get ourselves all cleaned up before we can walk into your presence. But we show up in your midst, and there you are with a towel and a basin. And in your presence, you make us clean. You restore our souls, and you give us hope, and you give us life. Forgive us when we just blow this and keep people away from you. And tell them they have to jump through or make them feel like they have to jump through a million hoops just to get near you. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, when we do that. And praise you that you invite us to follow you just like we are. And that you spend the rest of our lives changing us. Giving us new hearts, new minds, making us like you, Jesus. We love you so much. Your wisdom beyond our imagination. Father, I pray for those that are sitting here today and maybe they don't, maybe it's just hard to fathom that they could really come before you just like they are. And I ask that you would give them the courage and the strength, the faith and the trust to know that they can, that you are the God of all mercy and love and goodness. And that you, Lord Jesus, call those who are weary and heavy laden to come near to you that you're with us in our struggles. You're with us in our work. Father, for those that maybe just uh, are reminded tonight of how things began for them, they began through your mercy and calling, accepting them just like they were. Restore that joy to their souls, Lord God. Let people let us all not be burdened and heavy, weighted down by by the feeling that we just kind of have to be performers. But it's just rest in your arms, Jesus. 
We love you and we praise you. Amen.